Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Talking in Circles. I'm Clayton Caldwell with Philip Matthew and Tanner Watkins here tonight. Just want to talk, you know, Tanner Watkins really isn't on our show much. Tanner, I just want to give you a chance to give us your IndyCar background here to start. Uh, Uh, you know, been been in touch with IndyCar. Yeah, just uh, real quick. You know, uh, I'm the owner and editor of OpenWheels.com. Uh, Open Dash Wheels. If you search it uh, and, and find the URL, but yeah, we uh, we cover obviously the NTT IndyCar series as well as some uh, road to Indy stuff. Um, but yeah, I started writing for Open Wheels back in April 2017. And then when the previous owners uh, kind of ran out of time to to fully maintain the site, uh, I was very fortunate to uh, be offered the opportunity to take open wheels and, and, and kind of run it from that point on. And so uh, ever since the fall of 2017, I've been in this capacity and uh, have had a great time interacting with a bunch of individuals that uh, follow our site now and, and race fans that, uh, you know, really drive the sport of motor racing, not just uh, IndyCar forward, and that's that's probably been one of the most enjoyable things. Uh, but yeah, thank you guys for having me on your show tonight, and uh, hopefully I can contribute something useful to uh, to the broadcast this evening. Yeah, I think you will, no doubt about that. I mean, uh, it, it's got to be one of, for your side, you and you guys working that side. I know Philip. Every time I talk to him, he's just like, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait for Sunday, I can't wait for Sunday, and I'm not even. You know that uh, indie savvy. I'm not really in, into IndyCar as much as I am into NASCAR. But for for you guys over there, OpenWheels.com, what does this weekend mean to you? I mean, I I, I know what the Daytona 500 is for the, on the NASCAR side of things, but the Indy 500 to me is so much more than that. What does this weekend mean to you, and how exci- how much are you looking forward to the Indianapolis 500 this weekend? Yeah, I mean, if if the Daytona 500 is NASCAR's Super Bowl then to me, the Indianapolis 500 is the World Cup. Uh, You know, obviously, it's a massive event here in the States, and and we're really proud of it in Indiana. Um, But it's such an international event where, you know, uh, half of the field are drivers from outside of the country. Um, Obviously, that's a a talking point for a lot of fans that that maybe – favored the American drivers a little bit, but you can't deny that it's such an international event. Um, and then if you go talk to, to someone like Jay Douglas Bowles or somebody that works at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, they're so proud of the diverse fan base that comes and enjoys this event every Memorial Day weekend. Obviously, it's the biggest race on our calendar, and it's uh, something that we put a lot of effort into and, and roll out pretty much all the stops for the month of May um, on our website and try to push content and find things as interesting as possible for our fans, because, you know, there's no denying that it's, it's the granddaddy of them all for us. And uh, obviously it's, it's a highly anticipated event. Um, There are a lot of variables kind of up in the air for this weekend. You know, we've kind of got some hot temperatures uh, coming our way where, you know, the last real practice that they've had was yesterday uh, for just a couple hours, and it was 60 degrees air temperature. And by the time the cars hit the track again for final practice on Friday, it's going to be 20 degrees hotter. 
the track temperature is going to be 30 or so degrees hotter. And so that's going to make it really difficult on these guys uh, and, and gals, as Pippa made the show, um, for this race weekend. Um, we saw how hard it was to pass last year, and so you've got all that added in, plus, unfortunately, uh, a small threat of rain. So there's a lot up in the air. Obviously, the Indy 500 is big every year. Um, but once you get to race week, it really takes on a new meaning. For sure. 917 is the number to call here if you want to discuss anything Indianapolis 500 related tonight on Talking Circles. Okay, let's get into it, guys. Let's get into the stuff that we really want to talk about, and that is what's going to happen here. And, and really review a little bit of, of qualifying, a very, very uh, emotional day for a lot of people on Saturday and Sunday. You talk about people, man, getting into the show. Uh, with a small race team, that was a, a a huge huge deal for her. And of course, how can we all leave out the Fernando Alonso deal, uh, where you know he was missed the show. I mean, here's a guy who is considered Philip said it on our show last time is considered uh, one of the biggest drivers in this in the world. A lot of people consider him one of the most talented drivers in the world, and he's not in this Indianapolis 500. Um, let's start there, you know, just from a, an impact standpoint, I get Phillips, uh, opinion on this after yours here, Tanner. Um, what do you think this means for Indianapolis? I mean, do you think this race would have had a, a bigger reach with Fernando in it? And do you think they should have figured out a way to get Fernando in this race? Uh, what are your thoughts on, on Fernando Alonso missing the Indianapolis 500? Yeah. I mean, I was, um, I was there over the weekend, and, and just shock was the word to kind of uh, put to everybody's emotions. It's just it's unfathomable that a team like uh, McLaren, when it came right down to it, uh, got straight up beat by a team uh, like Hunkos Racing that had 45 people called in to work on uh, repairing that car once Kyle Kaiser wrecked on, on Fast Friday. But, yeah, it's undeniable that uh, the reach would have been larger with Fernando in the race. And, uh, you know, I still think there are some individuals that have kind of been converted over to IndyCar that have uh, more or less been exposed to the sport with Fernando racing in 2017 and his attempted bid here in 2019. I think you'll hold some of those people, but obviously there's no way that we can reach the ceiling that would have been possible with Fernando in the race this Sunday. Um, you know, I wrote about this earlier in the week. It, it's just a travesty for McLaren uh, to have such an effort like this fall through. And, and, and really we've heard in the last couple of days, just the pieces that were up in the air, even in the dying moments uh, of Sunday, you know, obviously there was a last ditch attempt to, um, convert a setup on Sunday morning ahead of the rains, whenever the practice uh, session preceded qualifying and McLaren asked for some setup help from different teams, got a little bit of help, but they, (laughs) of all things, forgot to convert uh, the measurements from the United States conversion system to the metric system, which uh, McLaren was using on their car. That's one of the reasons why that car was scraping and, and shooting sparks out of the back when we saw it practicing on Sunday morning, you've got that, you've got the issue where apparently after the Texas test, uh, McLaren did not like the color of the car. Uh, They didn't think it was quite papaya orange. So when we saw the backup car being rolled out 
after Alonzo crashed on Wednesday, I believe it was, that car still had a plastic bag over it because they were still painting that car. There are so many things that were mismanaged in this whole McLaren fiasco. Um, you know, it, it's still amazing to look and see that McLaren won't be there um, when all the fans return to the track on Friday and that garage will be empty. But you just wonder, how did this happen to a racing organization of that caliber? Yeah, it is crazy. You know, you, you talk about McLaren, and, and they're such a big name in Formula One that for them to come over here to IndyCar and, and miss the Indianapolis 500, uh, it was shocking. And, and Fernando Alonso, you know, everybody was talking about not only that he could make this race, but potentially win it. Uh, Philip Matthew, you know, I, we I know we discussed this a little bit here on our show on Sunday, but what about Alonso from your point of view? I mean, um, is this to you a mistake that they're, they, they're not buying themselves into the race because of the fact that it would get a bigger reach? Or do you think this keeps the integrity of the Indianapolis 500 up by guaranteeing the 33 fastest cars make this field? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, there's been instances over the years where people have had to buy back in. There's one of the most famous instances was when Scott Goodyear took over uh, Mike Roth's qualified car, a 91 Lola versus Scott Goodyear's 92 car when he got knocked out of the out of the race and qualifying only to go from 33rd and almost win the Indianapolis 500. Uh, Brian Hunter Ray in recent years when Andretti Autosport was on the ropes had to buy back in because he was a regular competitor. Um, but in the case of Fernando Alonso, I mean, I didn't know about the med- that the measurement thing. I did not know, so that was actually interesting uh, tidbit there. That I mean, that's just unbelievable. I, it's just crazy. The paint thing is just ridiculous. Uh, but when you consider McLaren, it's not the McLaren of Ayrton Senna and when Ron Dennis actually had all his marbles. It's more of what's been left behind and they have the Saudi consortium. They have all these different, you know, Middle Eastern um, uh, investors, and you have Zach Brown as this front guy. And, I mean, they were they were lost. Like, the point is Robin Miller wrote this, and I respect him to the core. He's one of the only journalists I'll ever respect in my life as a wannabe journalist myself in the sense. But he said they were basically out to lunch before they ever showed up to the racetrack. And then once they showed up to the racetrack, they had electrical problems, they had all these different problems. This was during testing. Then they get here, I mean, the and they were not prepared with two proper cars. Uh, I mean, I get it. You're a one-off effort. Maybe you don't have two cars. A lot of these other teams didn't. We saw in the fast, in the last row shootout for the six cars had wrecked. So, I mean, and also you can connect it to when you're McLaren and then you're begging Andretti, they, the Penske thing was denied, but you're begging Andretti for setup notes, you're doing all this, we're getting dampers and all these things. You didn't put yourself in a position with one of those elite teams. You could have called Ed Carpenter, I mean, albeit he had already made his this deal with Scuderia Corsa and you could have said, Hey, can we work with you? Or you could have went to Penske and said, Hey, we could, could we work with you if they have this much pull? 
and Zach Brown knows all these people. But obviously that never happened or they got denied. And in that sense, and also the way that Fernando reacted on Saturday uh, when Kelly Stavis interviewed him, he had already resigned himself to the fate they weren't going to make the race. It didn't really matter what they did on Sunday. He had already resigned himself to the fact they were going to miss the race. And I've seen that look over the last few years in Formula One where he just basically resigned himself to just being out there. And the whole point of what Fernando Alonso has been trying to do is he wants to win. And if he's not going to win, he's not going to be fully there. And so to get all the way back to the point, would it have been right for them to buy in? I'm sure McLaren tried between the the Humco's team, between, uh, you know, Carlin when they lost three, the three cars that failed to qualify, either were a Carlin car or had a Carlin connection or Dragon Speed with Ben Hanley, or even Pippa Mann with the Clawson Marshall team. They're all Chevy-powered teams. They're all in the show. They're all in the, I mean, outside of the, I mean, outside of the, the Hanley car, uh, they they run more, more of the race than they're going to be. They could have made a move there. None of them were going to go for it. And then Fernando Alonso didn't want to have anything to do with it either. And I respect him for that because, um, he's not going to make up the numbers. He's decided that at this point in his career that he's not trying to do that. And, I mean, they didn't earn it. And that's the way the Indy 500 has been for all these over 100 years. Legends have gone home. You know, Alan, we talked about it on Sunday. The only thing I can compare what happened on this weekend to is 95 when when Penske went home with, the defending race winner and defending IndyCar champion and a two-time Indianapolis 500 winner. Um, and they were out to lunch the whole entire month. They had a whole month to get this right, three weeks, whatever, and they couldn't get it right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's right that they moved on. And Bob Fernley quit basically the day after. I mean, his contract ended, but it's like he was gone immediately the dominoes are starting to fall and I think more heads are going to roll if they decide to come to a full indie program. Uh, there's going to have to be a lot of changes if they're going to come back here in 2020 and try to make this race. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, it, uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I'm curious if it's going to impact that. And I don't think we'll all we'll know until, you know, we get a little bit closer to the 2020 running of this event, but Tanner, uh, who do you think was, the biggest surprise for you, you know, you look at Dragon Speed and Ben Hanley. I know uh, from what I've read, that was a a big time upset sort of to make the race. Same thing with Pippa Mann and, and Clawson Marshall. Uh, but who, in your mind, was the biggest upset to make this Indianapolis 500? Yeah, for me, it, it has to be Dragon Speed. Um, I, I got to talk to Ben Hanley on Friday morning before they turned up the boost for Fast Friday, and you know, he was he was very respectable about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and this event and, and knew he needed to choose his words carefully because the, the Speedway has a way about it of, of humbling people. And Dragon Speed has come in here and has impressed me as much as any, any organization. Um, they've come in. They don't have any technical assistance with any existing team. They've been doing this all on their own, and they've been – Obviously, the team that's been at the bottom of the grid in any of the races that they've been here uh, and, and participating in previously, you know, we've seen Dragon Speed 
you know, a second and a second and a half off in, in qualifying or practice and, and any of the road and street course races that they've been to previously. But they've used this Indianapolis 500 in the format where you get multiple days of practice at seven hours apiece to just chip away at things. And what they did on Saturday was absolutely remarkable to not only put the car in the show, but they were comfortably in the show. They weren't even flirting with the, the, the bump line at, at 30th place uh, when it got around to 5 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. So for them to be so safely in the show and, and not even have to worry about not only a last night shootout, but even the idea or, or the last six shootout um, and getting to that point, you know, they, they put their run in the last run they had on, on Saturday afternoon at about 4 o'clock. And they got to pretty much pack up because they were more than six spots to the good. Um, and, and and for them to go out and accomplish a feat such as that, uh, I know they're very proud of it. They certainly should be. Um, they've definitely taken their lumps early on here in 2019. But, man, what an effort by those guys. And uh, it's even better to hear that, that they're really looking uh, seriously at expanding into a full-time IndyCar program. So, Kudos to them. Hopefully we see more of them down the road. And, uh, yeah, let's see what they do on Sunday now. And now let me ask you this. I asked you the biggest surprise, and we know the uh, biggest disappointment was Alonzo. But as far as the bigger teams go, the full-time teams, you know, uh, I, I see Ganassi down there with Dixon and uh, and Rosenquist. And there's a couple other teams that look like they didn't really qualify that good. Who are, is the biggest surprise for you as far are on the disappointing side of things where you look at it and say, I'm really surprised they didn't qualify a little bit better. And maybe you're even a little bit worried for them going into this Indianapolis 500. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, as far as the people that are in the field, I'll get to them in a moment. I would like to take a moment to just speak on, uh, the two Carlin cars that did not make the race, Max Chilton and Patricio O'Warren. Obviously, Pato, he had a crash uh, late in the week, which is always difficult to come back from as a team. Uh, in his case, they, they crashed a day earlier than Kyle Kaiser and Hukos did, and they still made the race. Um, but, man, isn't it surprising to see someone like, A, Max Chilton, obviously – hasn't had uh, such a stellar IndyCar career, but he has led 50 laps in the Indianapolis 500 before. He's normally been more than respectable uh, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and was a safe qualifier in the years before. And Patricio Ward is a massive talent. Uh, but obviously the mistake that he made in practice, the team couldn't come back from that uh, and, and find a suitable car uh, to put Pato in. He was essentially driving around a road course car. So that's very difficult to come back from. It's a shame that those two guys missed the show because uh, I think that's, that really hurts Carlin and um, their future moving forward. I think I heard Trevor Carlin say that, that it was going to be a significant hit to um, their sponsorship agreements to have two cars miss out on the 500. So fingers crossed that nothing's wrong there in the future. Uh, it was difficult to see someone like uh, J.R. Hildebrand and Sage Karam and Dry and Rival Racing as a whole struggle with qualifying so much. Now, we've seen Sage drive up through the field from, from back half starting positions, uh, but I asked him on Friday, I said, you know, this is something you guys have faced 
pretty much every year that you've been here. Uh, each start he'd had at Indianapolis, he qualified no better than 21st, I believe. So I asked Sage, and I said, you know, do you guys have any added emphasis on qualifications this year? And how comfortable do you feel? And this was on Fast Friday. So heading into the weekend, they thought they had a top 15, top 20 car in qualifications. And then we saw, you know, obviously with what happened to Sage, but even up until the end of the day, it took a mighty clutch run from Hildebrand to get in the field, and he ended up qualifying in the in the low 20s. Um, you know, I think those guys will normally be fine for the race because it's just similar to what they do. Uh, but it was interesting to see them that far back. As far as anybody else, there wasn't any massive surprises. Obviously, we had hoped Felix Rosenquist as a stellar rookie here early on would qualify higher up than 29th in his first Indianapolis 500. But just like with uh, with the uh, Kaiser or Award, it's difficult to crash in practice week uh, anymore and come back and put together a stellar qualifying effort. You also have Scott Dixon. He qualified 18th, so a little odd to see him that far back, but he'll be fine. Uh, the middle of the grid is really littered with a lot of guys that uh, have had success at, at Indianapolis or at least been contenders in years past. We've got Sato starting 14th, Tony Kanan starting 16th, the aforementioned Dixon starting 18th, and then you even have uh, Ryan Hunter Ray starting 22nd. So, you know, Hunter Ray. He's a guy, they, he struggled all week long. They were just happy to get it in the show. I think you'll see a lot of those big teams be fine for the race, and the cream will rise to the top. But, uh, yeah, it was just an interesting weekend. And this format really provided a lot of drama. So, yeah, it, it, we'll see what happens on race weekend. It's going to be a completely different beast, and the temperatures are going to throw some curveballs. But I think the veterans, in the end, will be okay. 917-889-8280, Talking Circles, Clayton Caldwell, Philip Matthew, and Tanner Watkins here tonight. We're discussing the Indianapolis 500. Philip, how different is the setup here? I mean, again, I'm used to NASCAR. I know most of the listening audience is, is used to the NASCAR side of things. But how different in IndyCar, if at all, is the setup for uh, qualifying in the race? Um, and do teams maybe focus a little bit more on uh, the teams that, you know, look at it as basically being in this race. Do they focus more on the, on their race runs and we'll see them perform better during the race? How much different is the race setup compared to the qualifying setup for this Indianapolis 500? I mean, I would, I would go and uh, say, uh, go to Tanner because he's more uh, connected in terms of what the exacts, like the exact numbers and the exact changes that they have to make. The way I would compare it for us being that we do NASCAR, we think about the 500 back in the day when there wasn't like an impound and all this. They would go and throw everything at it to qualify on pole for the Daytona 500. And they'd do all the trick suspension, slam the car on the ground, qualifying motor, this, that, and the other. Uh, they would The point within, with the Indy 500 not compared to like 20 years ago. Now we have a spec chassis. There's very few things that the teams can change and adjust on their own, but it's a case of less downforce on the car for ultimate speed and probably damper changes as per keeping the car lower, 
versus raising the car up more to give proper, you know, clearance and more downforce so that you can handle the higher, the bigger, um, the more fuel, uh, longer runs. The point is the Penske's, Ganassi's, Andretti's of the world, they have the numbers, even Ed Carpenter in this case for this year and in the last couple of years, they have the numbers where they've all been able to utilize this condensed time frame and kind of science out a qualifying setup versus a race setup and kind of see all different aspects. Um, and, I mean, I think I would compare what qualifying setup is for Indy 500 to what the old qualifying setups were when they didn't have all these different crazy rules for the Daytona 500 compared to what you have to race with. Because you have to have a car that can last 500 miles and can race in traffic. And that's a totally different animal. Uh, and that's where, you know, those cre- the cream will rise to the top, as Tanner said, uh, and where those veterans who understand what it's like to win this race, to compete in this race, will be able to get around some of those raw rookies and people who don't have as much experience, say, like Colton Herta or somebody like that who's a top rookie getting a lot of PR and all that. He's going to be there and he's starting fifth. It'll be a much more difficult um, run for him, per se, compared to his, like, teammate, proxy teammate, Ryan Hunter Ray. Uh, on Sunday because he understands what it's like to be in race conditions at the Indianapolis 500, which is like a whole different animal. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. How about this, Tanner, from from the, the tire side of things, the tire fall off and, and all the strategy that will go into this race, what do you think we'll see? Will the tires make a, a, a big difference if you have fresher tires compared to, you know, two tires? Or, um, you know, will tire fall off be a big deal here? in this race in your eyes and uh, how do you think will there be much strategy in this Indianapolis 500? I mean, NASCAR nowadays is sort of gimmicky with the, with the stages. And one thing I really have truly appreciate about the Indianapolis 500 is they don't throw cautions for a water bottle sitting on the apron, 500 miles away from the racetrack. Um, And that's nice to see. And there's no stages. So it's sort of, you know, you go in there and if it's run, you have to race it like it's going to run green for the entire 500 miles. Um, but what do you think strategy-wise we're going to see here? Will there be a lot of wrecks? I mean, last year we, we saw some wrecks, uh, a, a bunch of wrecks, a lot of carnage last year. What about the strategy? What do you think we're going to see in this Indianapolis 500? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think it I think it really comes down to weather. Um, I hate to, to say that, but, you know, last year one of the reasons why the drivers struggled so mightily was, A, it was insanely hot. We had temperatures – in the low 90s, and it was nearing uh, record temperatures for the Indianapolis 500. And with this universal aero kit, last year, uh, the drivers and the teams themselves did not have the aerodynamic options uh, at their disposal to really combat um, what is really an inefficient front wing on this universal aero kit. So they had a lot of trouble in traffic where essentially – uh, if you were pumping a bunch of front wing angle uh, into the car because the driver is saying, well, I, I can't follow people, I need more front downforce, well, eventually what would happen was 
uh, as a car was following another car, if that lead car moved over to the side just a bit and some of that clean air caught the front wing of a trailing car that has been piling on downforce, uh, that's how you would get caught out and the front end would eventually catch and then you wouldn't have enough rear downforce on the car and that would spin you into the wall. So one thing that IndyCar tried to do uh, in the off season, the Indianapolis 500 off season is uh, they a added some options um, to the front wing and also allowed wickers to be placed on the rear wing to try to give teams a little bit more of a comfort level as far as manipulating downforce. What also happened was B, Firestone has brought a new tire to the Indianapolis 500 this year. And what Firestone believes is the tires will go as long as the fuel needs them to go. So tires, in theory, should not be an issue. With that being said, I still believe with conditions similar to last year, if we get that. Now on Sunday, Right now, the forecast is tracking mid to high 70s, which would be much better uh, than what we saw in 2018. Obviously, it's Indiana in the spring, so that could change by tomorrow. But if we got a cooler racetrack on Sunday, I think it's still going to be difficult to pass. I still think this universal arrow kit does not lend to uh, the same back and forth passing and, and exciting Indianapolis 500 action that we were kind of spoiled with. Uh, over the last half decade before we introduced this new aero kit last year, I still think there'll be a window of passing after, you know, pit stops or restarts uh, where maybe you'll have eight to 10 laps where it kind of looks like uh, the indie of the early 2010s. Um, but I feel that tires are still going to be king and, and more or less tires at the beginning of a run uh, are going to lend to the best passing opportunities. After that 8 to 10 lap mark, then I think it's going to take a driver in front of you making a mistake rather than you forcing a pass uh, in, or, in order to pass somebody. I just don't believe that even though Firestone has brought a tire that the drivers say is better and it does give a little bit more bite in the front end of the car, I don't think it's made up for all the inefficiencies that this Universal Aero Kit has. And so if we have uh, a race day temperature of anything over the amount of 75 degrees ambient temperature, I still think it's going to be tough for these guys to pass. And so, therefore, you're going to be asking for new tires whenever you can possibly get them. It's very interesting. I have a it's, question, it's, actually. Um, I have a question to follow up. So how many sets of tires do each of the teams have for race day and for carb day um, in regards to from, yeah, for the rest of the week, how many sets of tires do they have left in? To, now, to my understanding, I know that teams get 30, 36 sets of tires for the entire month. I do not know if there's a cap for race day. Uh, normally, we get an email from Firestone during the week that outlines the amount of tires that teams can use for the race itself. Now, thankfully, Carb Day is still part of the, the practice month, so they can use however many sets that they want here on Friday, depending on how many sets that they have left from uh, different practice days throughout the month. But I haven't gotten clarification from uh, Firestone or IndyCar on the amount for race day. Going off of previous years, I would say that number is 10 sets of tires. Uh, 
but that's not confirmed. That would just be an estimate at this point. Ooh, inter- that's very interesting to see how these teams will utilize their tires and, and all the strategies that will go into that. Um, you know, this race is interesting as well because I know um, when you look at it, there, there's 33 starters. There's been 33 starters here for a long time. That really what it happens is is you see a lot of drivers come in for one-off deals. One of the drivers coming in for a one-off deal this year running a part-time schedule is Elio Castroneves. Um, how hard is it for somebody to be out of a car all year and to jump into this race where you got teams that have, you know, and drivers that have been together all year and uh, shake been shaking off the rust for for a driver to come in here and and a one off deal. How hard is it to pull off a win? Has it happened? Have we seen somebody in recent years that's really uh, Dan been a one off? Dan, I know Dan. Well, I was gonna say Dan Weldon. I remember was was not was part time at that time when he won it. But uh, other than that, you know, how hard is it to do that? Uh, here in Indianapolis. Yeah, I mean, Dan Weldon's definitely the last guy that's done it as an Indianapolis 500 winner. And if you look at Dan's case, uh, the year before, I believe he was full-time. And so you look at Elio here in 2019, and obviously he's got all the experience of any driver that you could ever ask for at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. What he's being challenged with this month that I think is different than what he experienced last year is now instead of being out of IndyCar full-time for one year, it's been two years. And so obviously he's keeping busy with the sports cars and all the things like that, and that keeps him sharp uh, as a driver with the mental side and and obviously your fast, uh, quick twitch reflexes and things like that. But there's some things that you just can't replace. And, And so being out of the car for two years is obviously a big difference in being out of the car full-time for one year. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's having more difficulties getting back up to speed with things. He mentioned on uh, the first day back that, you know, just looking around and and, then finding the pit speed limiter was something that he was being challenged with uh, as he got back to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. That's one of the reasons why uh, he was smart and and probably gracious that Team Penske allowed him to run the Indianapolis Grand Prix uh, that allows him to to sort of sort out some of those procedural bugs, like finding the the pit speed limiter on your on your steering wheel and reading through the dash, uh, things of that nature. That's really helpful in preparing for the race in that sense. But anytime that you're out and away from a car uh, for this extended period of time, note he did get a chance to run at Circuit of the Americas in February. Granted, that was a road course test, uh, but he also got the chance to run in the April open test at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which was kind of a weather-affected uh, day. So more or less, you know, Elio's got some experience, but there's nothing that replicates actually being on track in the month of May and the pressure that comes with each and every practice run that you make where the team relies on every run and every set of data that you generate and any mistakes that you make can essentially invalidate that data. And so either you can't use it or you have to estimate uh, what the proper use of that data would be, and that determines what direction you go with your setup. So it's obviously been a challenge for Elio so far. Uh, In this month of May, last year he made the fast nine. This year he qualified 12th for the race. Obviously in a perfectly adequate uh, starting position for the race, and he could certainly race his way up into the top five by, 
you know, the first 50 to 75 laps. Uh, but I do think that it's been more of a challenge for him this year, and it has not come as naturally uh, as in years past. How about, uh, Philip? I want your take on this here. How about the age factor? You know, you, you see, we, we were just talking about Castro Nevis. Also, you've got Tony Kanaan, who's uh, over the age of 40 here. Um, and I'm sure there's a couple others who are, who are getting up yeah, there on the age Kirby. factor. Serbia, right. Um, is this a young man's sport in IndyCar like we've kind of seen in NASCAR, where NASCAR has gone to, you know, everybody above 40 really is starting to retire or they're getting to the back end of their careers? Um, and that was obviously wasn't always the case in NASCAR. But is this sort of what we've seen? I know uh, Al Sr. won this race at, a, at an older age back in the 80s, but um, is this a young man's sport now? And uh, do, you, do you think that we'll see a guy who's a younger guy under the age of 30 uh, in victory lane on Sunday? I mean, if you ask NBCSN with their obsession with Colton Herta, you'd say yes. Um, but to me, when it comes to Indianapolis, um, it doesn't really matter. I think being in, being experienced is actually a good thing. Being an older driver is a good thing. Oriole Servia puts these one-off deals together, shows up fit as can be, as fit as any of the regular uh, drivers that run all the races, and he put on, he qualified 19th solid, no problem, and he always seems to race really well on race day. It doesn't matter who he races for. He's been a true professional. Helio Castroneves is a three-time Indianapolis 500 winner. He drives for Roger Penske. At the end of the day, the reason why he's driving in this race is to join the elite trio and become a four-time Indianapolis 500 winner. Um, the fact that he's had now a year and he was in 2017 a full-timer, so it was only a few months separation versus now a year and a half, two years away, more difficult. But Indy fires him up like nothing else outside of dancing, I guess. So it's like, you know, for him, this is it. You know, if he can go and win Indianapolis for a fourth time, you know, he goes in the pantheon of one of the greatest drivers, you know, in terms of IndyCar racing. And he's the first year – yeah, he'd be the first year uh, non-American driver to be a four-time winner of the Indianapolis 500, too. Tony Kanaan and A.J. Foyt's team, their investment is basically for this week, for this race. Uh, for no, for, I mean, for no, like no intended purposes, they're just out there. Um, Tony Kanaan's best days on road courses past uh probably five to seven, eight, maybe 10 years ago. He's still solid on ovals. The only times he really showed well were, was with Ganassi were at the oval. His last win was at um, Auto Club Speedway. The only win I think he had for Ganassi was at Auto Club Speedway. And so for him, and at this point in his life now, married to Lauren and all the kids and all this stuff. This is what he lives for. He's around to win Indy. AJ Foy hired him basically to win Indy. And so when it comes to the whole age thing, age 
and it shows with Al Unzer and all the other great legends that kept on going into their 50s back in the day, age isn't a factor. They don't, the car doesn't know how old you are in that sense. And, 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 that's, and I believe that the age and the experience helped them uh, in this race. And will somebody under 30 win this race? It's entirely possible. There's plenty of guys in the show that are, you know, under 30. But do I really believe that's going to happen? No. There's too many good, uh, I mean, for the exception of, like, I'm looking at the list right now out of curiosity. I mean, honestly, Joseph Newgarden, of course, stands out to me um, as a under 30 guy. But when I think about most of the guys who I think could win this race, uh, I see over 30 uh, in terms of who would win, mainly because, you know, there's just the experience and uh, all the things that are going for them. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how, uh, you know, how these veterans, these guys who have been here a long time, you know, I was going through the, the list of, of drivers and, and just seeing who has more than 10 starts and uh, just trying to look and, and think if I have an – you know, I don't know IndyCar very well, but thinking if they have an opportunity to win this race, it would be wild to see. It would be uh, really cool to see a veteran pull it off. It would also be really cool to see a young guy pull it off. Uh, Tanner, you've been there. You've been there all week pretty much. You've watched a lot of these practice sessions. Um, you know, they've been here for almost two weeks now. Uh, who do you got? Who do you think is going to win this race? And if you could give us – uh, an underdog as far as somebody who you think might surprise some people, who do you got uh, uh, on Sunday and who's an underdog? Yeah, I, uh, I don't think this is, is such an out of left field pick, but uh, in what we saw on Monday in what's supposed to be race uh, conditions, guys running in packs, obviously the track temp was a lot cooler, but Alexander Ross, who was putting on a show, very similar to what we saw when he drove from the very last row uh, in 2018 nearly to the win uh, last May. I think Alexander is going to be a threat uh, as long as he can keep his nose clean on Sunday. He's going to be there. He's shown that he can run in the hot conditions. He can run in the cool conditions. That's not going to be an issue for them uh, as long as they avoid any massive miscues in the pit lane, which for whatever reason, Alexander's team uh, seems to have one or two each Indianapolis 500, and he overcame a couple of those when he won in 2016. I think that 27 uh, Napa Auto Parts car is going to be in contention. And another guy that I've seen uh, work really well in the traffic for his first time at the Indianapolis Winter Speedway, Santino Ferrucci has done a great job this month. I know he's received a lot of criticism over the last six months or so uh, and, and has been more or less a pol- polarizing figure uh, when he was signed by Dale Coin Racing, but he said all the right things this month. He's respected the Speedway. He's been very candid, uh, and, and you know, even being scared by the track at, at times where he's had to, to get out of the car and take a deep breather. But man, he's laid it out on the line. He's been dazzling in practice, and he's kept the car clean. Uh, you know, he's he's been the first to admit to me that he's had a moment or two, uh, and you're going to have that. Uh, throughout the month of May. It's a very long month with a lot of practice time. It's very important to stay sharp and keep focused, and and that's something that even a two-time world champion couldn't do 
throughout the first four practice days of the month leading into qualification. He kept it easy on himself. They safely made it into the field. Didn't really have to worry too much about qualifications weekend, and now they're working to race day. I don't think Ferrucci is a threat to win on Sunday, but I think they could definitely sneak in, get a nice top 10 out of this race, and he could perhaps contend uh, for Rookie of the Year honors. He's really impressed me to this point. And how about Marco Andretti's chances? I know, you know, when we think of IndyCar, we think of Indianapolis. Andretti is always a name that that pops up, and and they've been here forever since Mario, and then you had Michael, and and you had Jeff, and you had John, and you had uh, now you have Marco here. Um, what are his chances on Sunday? I, listen, his career's been a little bit of a disappointment when you look at it compared to his dad or his his grandfather even, um, but. You know, he's in his 14th start. He finished second here in 06, when, and he really looked great that race. He, he took a lead a, a bunch of years ago, had a lead for a while. Uh, and I think he just lost this race in 06, too. Um, what are his chances on Sunday? Do you think he's got any chance at winning this race? I think every time Marco comes to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, he's got a chance to contend for a win. This is certainly uh, his best track historically throughout his IndyCar Series career. You mentioned that near miss back in 2006. Uh, you know, it's going to come down to execution. Um, you know, he, just a couple years ago, Marco seemed to be in, in prime position to at least contend for the victory. And I remember uh, his team put the wrong tires on the wrong side of the car and mixed up the air pressures in the front end of his car. You know, just those things that, that seem to happen to this Andretti family at Indianapolis, you know, maybe – this is the year on the 50th anniversary of, of Mario's 1969 win where they can uh, relinquish those demons and, and, and kind of wash away all the pain that they've had for the last three or four decades. Um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see. I, I think Marco is more uh, of a top five car. Um, if we're looking at their ceiling, I'm not sure if they have enough to win, but normally – uh, he's got a lot of confidence coming into race weekend. He knows how to get around this track. He normally keeps his nose clean. There's been very few times where, where Marco hasn't finished the race. It's actually just three out of his 13 starts where he's had uh, a DNF. So he's normally there at the end. Uh, if they can get him set up in, in the hot temperatures, which they struggled with last year, um, we'll see what the conditions bear out for Sunday. I think if it's cooler, that helps Marco out uh, a great deal. Uh, but I would expect between the top five and the top ten finish for Marco on Sunday. And you never know. If, if a few things fall their way and maybe some of the league contenders uh, have issues along the way, they have to run a clean race. From the pit stops to the strategy to Marco executing on the track, it has to be tidy uh, or else I don't think they really have um, – much much of a fighting chance unless they're absolutely perfect on Sunday. If they do that, there's no reason to think that Marco couldn't contend for a victory. Uh, but really, they have to be sharp as a tack on Sunday if they want a chance. And one last question before I get Phillips' picks to win this race. One driver I always feel like, you know, over the last couple of years, because he was just so good in Formula One, and he was a guy I always watched in awe when he was in Formula One. And, and one driver I feel like, uh, every time I watch the Indianapolis 500, it, it should be up there and competing for wins. And he had a really, really vicious crash here a couple of years ago. 
and that's Sebastian Bourdais. Uh, what are his chances? Is he Honda's best chance, maybe aside from Alexander Rossi, to win this race? And, and do you think uh, this fits his driving style? What are Sebastian Bourdais' chances at winning the Indianapolis 500 on Sunday? I think Bourdais is really, really rounding into almost like a fine wine. He gets better with age. And and I know that, you know, they're not at the very front contending for race wins every week. Um, you know, normally they, they know how to play strategy and, and get up front. Sebastian, I think his driving talents uh, are as good as they've ever been. Uh, he mentioned earlier this week that even just a few years or a couple of years removed from the injuries he sustained, he sustained during qualification, I believe that was back in 2017. You know, he mentioned even this week that he still faces some of those demons and, and, and trying to put out of his mind the, the accident that happened in 2017. That's still something that, you know, sometimes we fail to realize that these guys are still human. And we see some, some tremendous displays of, of courage and, and things like James Hinchcliffe coming back one year from, uh, his terrible accident in Indianapolis and, and making a tremendous run at the pole and, and, and clinching pole position for the 100th running. And then uh, Bourdais getting back into the car just a mere month after fracturing his hip, his hip and his pelvis. You know, we see these guys uh, do heroic things and come back from near-fatal accidents. Uh, and then you think once they get back to the track that they've wiped that from their memory. The point of the matter is that that's just not possible to do. And so for someone like Sebastian Bourdais to come to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway every year, he has to put that as far back in his mind as he can, but it's never back far enough where he completely forgets it. I think it would be a tremendous story if he could come back this week and, and have a tremendous uh, run to the front. He is certainly one of the strongest Honda competitors, and we've seen Dale Coin Racing really step up their super speedway product over the last three years. I think this is as good of a chance he's had since 2017 uh, when they were tracking to be one of the pole contenders during that run where he crashed. Uh, I think Dale Coin Racing, this is as good of a shot that they've ever had as an organization. Uh, and like I said before, Seb is, is aging like a fine wine. If he's ever going to put it together, I think it would be this month of May uh, because he's certainly got the savvy and the talent. And I think he's learned a little bit from the crash that he had during the race last year when he simply got caught out just a little bit with the, the hot conditions. Uh, he's as intelligent a driver as there is out on, on the grid. Uh, I don't know if Dale Coin Racing has enough resources for him to punch with the Penske's and the Andretti's and the Ganassi's on a week to week basis. Uh, but they certainly have what it takes with the extended practice format of the Indy 500. And I think Seb is their best uh, Honda chance outside of Alexander Rossi. Very cool. Nine one seven eight nine eight two eight zero. Uh Philip, who do you got this weekend uh, on Sunday at Indianapolis? I mean, there's a lot of drivers. We, we didn't even talk about Simon Pagino and he's on the pole after a great run there in the fast nine on Sunday. Um, who do you got for a chance to win this race? And maybe an underdog from your eye, maybe somebody that caught your eye as an underdog who can pull off a victory here. Yeah. I mean, I play uh whatever fantasy game and for IndyCar and 
I've had this pick in my mind for a few weeks now, and only what's gone what's gone on during this practice week has kind of reinforced my pick. I I'm going out there a little bit. It's based on the odds. I was looking at them because I I bought them up during the show right here. I'm going with Ed Jones. Um, I'm going with Ed Jones. He's and it goes against my whole bit I just did earlier about the over 30 guy because he's a young guy. But the reality is he's with Ed Carpenter Racing with Scuderia Corsa, one of the best sports car uh, GT efforts there is, uh, one of the best-looking cars out there with uh, uh, the McNeil family and uh, WeatherTech. They were fast during Saturday. They were fast. They were almost fast enough to have Ed Carpenter Racing lock out the whole entire front row of the Indianapolis 500, which has been one of the biggest stories ever. His racecraft, and if you bring up Sebastian Bourdais, I remember in 2017 when Ed Jones kept on going back out there trying to get into the Fast 9 as his teammate at Dale Coyne Racing. And then on top of that, responded on race day when James Davison had taken over Bourdais' ride. Ed Jones finished third that day in the Indianapolis 500 which was the best finish that Dale Coyne's ever had in this race. Uh, and so Ed Jones has the, the you know, the, the stuff to compete. And he's been running more or less the whole, he's been running the whole year with Ed Carpenter Racing, so it's not like he's rusty. And you have a really good race car, and Ed Carpenter puts everything in this race. Because of everything, you know, family and location. But Ed Jones is kind of, you know, you know, look at me. I got let go by Ganassi. They didn't want me. They didn't treat me right. Whatever. It didn't work there. And on outside of outside of uh, Dario Franchitti, nobody that's been in the ten car has really gotten that respect. Going back to Dan Weldon even, and before that. But Ed Jones is like, I'm going to prove myself, and this would be a big day for him to go and do it. And I wouldn't be shocked if he went out there and won this race on Sunday. In terms of a wild card dark horse pick, I'm going to go with somebody from a team he used to drive for. I'm going to go with James Davison. The reality is James Davison and Coyne, going into what, you know, Tanner talked about with what Dale Coyne has and strategy. Davison's racecraft has gotten better over the years. He's become more polished. He understands what he needs to make, to win this race. And they were there late. They've been there late in recent years. And he's a really solid driver. The Jonathan Bird family uh, supporting them, it's going all the way back to John Andretti. We were talking about that offline, I think. You know, talking about you know their their involvement in this Indianapolis 500. Uh, it would be an unbelievable uh, turn if uh, James Davison and that team on a one-off would be able to. But based on how they qualified. 
based on his experience and kind of people that they have, I feel as though that would be someone that you don't, you know, if you sleep on him, he might sneak up on you. A very interesting pick there. You know, you mentioned him coming in for Bourdais. I thought he did a great job that year when he came in for Bourdais, uh, not really having much time or any time in that car at all uh, and, and jumping in and doing a respectable job. I thought he did fine there. Um, I want to thank Tanner Watkins again. You were tremendous on the show tonight, and certainly hopefully we'll get you back on here after the Indianapolis 500. And Philip Matthew, of course, uh, great as always. I want to thank everybody for listening to Talking Circles tonight. A little bit of a special edition here of Talking Circles, uh, breaking down the 103rd running of the Indianapolis 500, which will take place Sunday at noon this year on NBC. So, uh, again, I want to thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time on Talking Circles. Good night, everybody.